Section 3 of The Black Cat, Volume 2, Number 1, October 1896. This is a LibreVox recording. All LibreVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibreVox.org. Recording by Julie Burks. The Black Cat, Volume 2, Number 1, October 1896. Section 3. A Peg-Leg Ghost by Wellington Van Diver. I was raised among the plantations of southern Alabama, had an old black mammy, and was imbued with all the superstitions of my foster mother. And though I've lived to have many of them knocked out of me, there are some that have worked in deeper than the skin. There was an old conjure nigger on my father's plantation when I was a lad, and I believed just as firmly in his miraculous powers as I now trust in the efficacy of a recently decided case. Why, I've seen him do things that would make your hair stand on end, and that no book of philosophy I've ever read could account for. Every darky within ten miles of that place would have suffered death before arousing the enmity of that old conja doctor, and no young buck or maid ever began a courting affair without first procuring a love charm from old Cato. I left the place and grew up to manhood, and had almost forgotten all about conjuring and such trash, when an incident in the trial of a criminal case recalled it all again very vividly. I was called on to defend a splendid specimen of the Negro waifs for killing his wife. He was a Hercules in bronze, and had lived happily with a quadroon wife until he had the misfortune to lose his leg in falling from the roof of a house, he being a carpenter by trade. After this, his wife seemed to have lost affection for him. She allowed the attentions of other men and worked him into a frenzy with her flirtations. He remonstrated, she continued. He threatened, she replied with counter-threats. And one day, when fully convinced of her infidelity to him, he came to town, purchased a pistol, announced his intention to kill her, hobbled a mile with a loaded pistol openly in his hand, and reaching home, followed by a curious crowd, he deliberately walked up to his wife, put the pistol against her bosom, and shot her five times, then stumped away, leaving her dead, with her clothing burning. Well, he sent for me to come to the jail and arrange about his defense. When I reached his cell, he related about what I have told you, and I frankly told him I saw but little chance to prevent his being hung. Not a single minute did that darky wait before breaking out in a loud, hoarse laugh. "'Oh, Lord, Colonel,' said he, "'there ain't a bit of danger of that.' "'The blazes there ain't,' I said. "'What's going to keep a jury of good and lawful men from stretching that yeller neck of yours, I would like to know? Why, nigger, there ain't enough lawyers in Alabama to save you.' "'Why, Colonel?' said he. I've got a conjure charm on me made by old Cato Fields. That's a certain preventative of death. You just go along and make your poration and your injections, and I'll come out all right. It was no use talking to the fellow, and so I prepared the best defense I could under the circumstances. Harry, my client, eyed the jury closely during the trial, and once when I happened to be disconcerted at a sudden artful move of the prosecution, he leaned over and whispered to me, It's all right, Colonel. 
I got conjure stuff for six of them jurymen, and I'd get plumb clear if I could have had enough for the other six. You just run and pitch. They can't hang me. While I covered more space and high reason, did more wind work, talked longer and said less in that case than ever before in my life, and during the whole time the nigger never took his eyes off the six jurymen, nor did he cease to mutter and work his fingers. The judge gave a terrible, bloody, vindictive charge, and when the jury retired, I felt it would be a matter of but a few hours with my client's neck. Greatly to my astonishment, the jury didn't come back that first day, nor on the next, and it was whispered over town that six of the panel were for acquittal. You could have knocked me down with a feather, and it took six drinks of whiskey to arouse me to the situation. The jury, after four days, came back and sentenced him to the state farm for six years. But I haven't gotten to the strangest part of the story yet. The Negro gave me a deed to his little home a mile from the town as a fee. There were about two acres of land, a fine well of water, and a comfortable cabin on it. I tried to rent the cabin, but couldn't get a darkie to occupy it for love nor money. They all said it was haunted. In the meantime, Harry went to the state penitentiary, and after arriving there, he wrote me that I'd have to get some conjure doctor to obey, that is, remove the smell from the house, or no negro would stay on the place. I rented it to a northern colored preacher with an educated wife, and he moved out in three days, said it was too noisy at night. My next tenant was a furnace hand with six children, and he stayed only one night, said there were too many colored women standing around the cabin at night to suit him. The neighbors wouldn't draw water from the well after dusk. They claimed that Harry's wife came to the well and helped him, and that when they lifted the bucket, there was always a small piece of burnt clothing on top of the water in the bucket. They even showed a lot of burnt rags to prove it. Finally, I got mad and had the cabin torn down, and every vestige of the temper burnt up, and I built two new and modern cottages about 100 yards west of the former location and quite near a public street. But all my tenants in the new houses remained but a few days and then folded up their tents like the Arab while I was at my wit's end. About this time I received another letter from my client in the penitentiary asking if the place had been obeyed and urging that I employ O. Cato Fields to fix it so the ghosts wouldn't walk there. That came like an inspiration, and I sent a nigger fifty miles with a horse and buggy to fetch the old rascal. He arrived three days later, but he wouldn't put foot on the place until midnight on the first night the moon began to wane. I went there with him on the night selected, and the mayor, two drummers, and a universalist preacher accompanied me. You see, the Universalist was just one of those fellows who was always looking into the curious and came along anyhow. The house had been situated on top of a little plateau about 75 yards square, and the soil there was a slaty white clay mixed with sand, was dead level, and clean of grass and rubbish. The old darky had on a red wool blanket, which he wore Mexican poncho fashion, a queer kettle-looking iron hat, and was barefooted and bare-legged. He made us all stand at least ten yards away from him, 
and charged us particularly not to come close to him while the charm was working. He squatted down on the ground, and for about fifteen minutes he chanted or crooned the most outlandish gibberish I ever heard. It seemed to be a sort of crude poetry with the refrain of Hallam, Scallum, Zaglum, Ilia, Polium, Rolium, Ipsum, Kilia. Where in thunder he got this dog Latin, or what it means, I can't answer. I only know it sounded mighty solemn. After a while he arose, and taking a short, black, thick wand from under his blanket, he walked ten steps backwards, and stooping over, he began to draw, upside down on the ground, the familiar diagram that the children used to use in playing the old outdoor game Hopscotch. The fact is, I had never thought of what geometric figures there were in that old hopscotch game. First, you know, there's a parallelogram, then on top of that a square, then on this follow four right-angled triangles, and lastly an arch. In each corner of this diagram he placed small dolls made of the resin of the pine tree, figures fashioned rudely like a woman, and stooping over them he blew his breath on them, and all at once each of those puppets broke out into flame as quickly as a skyrocket, and continued burning as long as we stayed. Around all this he drew a large circle, still walking backward, and mumbling in an undertone in a way to make your flesh crawl. The fact is, he reminded me of old Horseleg Jones at a backwoods prayer meeting, except that old Horseleg had a different way of breathing through his nose. Well, I got so interested that I couldn't stay away from the old sorcerer, and inadvertently I stepped into the ring old Cato had drawn. Immediately I felt a hot streak run down my leg, heard the hoarse laugh of my client Harry break out exactly as it had in the jail, and old Cato fell to the ground as if lightning struck. We poured cold water on the old fellow, and when he got so that he could talk, he bitterly upbraided me for breaking the charm, saying that the spell would now work backwards. And I'm willing to be branded as a monumental Ananias all over America, if every night you can't hear at that spot the familiar hobble of the fellow that I know to be safe in the penitentiary walls. You can hear his laugh, and you can see a track of rings as round as a dollar that no rain will erase, and punctuated with the dot and carry, the dent of the wooden leg and the flat foot of Harry running around that spot. It may rain floods, but the next day there is the same old peg-leg track, and every night from the street can be heard that same hoarse laugh that I'd swear to among a thousand voices. In the hopscotch ring there has grown up a red flower, strange in these parts, but which the floors pronounce an African tiger lily, and by which the sharp outline of the ring is as well preserved as if a gardener had carefully planted them. Recently I had a letter from the warden of the penitentiary, saying that every evening, just at sundown, Harry dropped into a cataleptic sleep, from which no power could awaken him until the next day at dawn. People may sneer at conjuring as much as they like. I know the facts, and I know that night after night Harry's old home is haunted by a live ghost. End of section 3